I'll give you two reasons for why I'm beginning this new series on Sunday nights. One is uh, personal and the other one is corporate. Corporate first. Um, I didn't feel done when I got done with Genesis corporately. I think uh, we are all hanging in on this storyline, but it would be another couple years to go through another Old Testament book. We like to do Old Testament, New Testament, kind of mix those up as we go. So I thought, um, let's just do it Sunday night. And so that's what we're going to do. The other one is connected to it, which is personal. And um, so I've been here 27 years. I've preached for 22 of those, 23 almost now, 20, yeah, four years, 23 of them, where I've been the regular every week preacher. And I am not doing well when it comes to the number of books I've gotten through. 11 of the 39 Old Testament books is all I have gotten through in this time. 23 years, that's all. I've got to move faster is the point. 16 of 27 New Testament books, so 27 out of 66. That is just not going to make it. I don't know when I'm aiming for, but I, you know, how long do I got? So I don't know, really know for sure. So I'd like to do a few more in my time, whatever that time may be. I don't think I'll ever finish, you know, all 66. And no worries there. There are many better preachers you can check out online if I don't finish them. But I'd really have as a bit of a life goal to try to preach through as many of these books and scripture as I can. So those are the two reasons why we're heading into Exodus. Tonight I'm going to give you an introduction to the book while still while covering chapter 1 at the same time. As you know, Exodus is written also by Moses, so it's a continuation really of Genesis. It's like Godfather 1 and 2. You can't get any better than both of those. Uh, Genesis is uh, on its own just one of the great works, obviously, of all history. Even if you weren't a Christian and you read Genesis, you'd have to say this is a masterpiece, just an absolute masterpiece thematically, the way it tells the story, the narrative itself, everything about it. In Exodus, um, really Genesis is just setting up what's going to start to narrow down in the book of Exodus. Um, here we have now the people of God, 400 years advanced from when Joseph got to with his family, got to Egypt. Fast forward 430 years, to be exact, and we come to the time of Exodus, when Moses is alive and the people of Israel had burgeoned in Goshen, and they had become slaves, which is the beginning of that story. Now they're on the cusp of taking the promised land. They've been delivered. And Moses is writing in the wilderness these first five books. And so Exodus is right where they were, all the Genesis uh, material was backdrop for the Israelites, for all of us, and to prepare them now to take the promised land that had been forecasted before Joseph died, the forecast that they would return to Canaan, return to the promised land. They weren't going to stay in Egypt. And now 430 years later, reality, the reality of fulfillment is upon them. He's writing to prepare these newly freed Israelites to take the promised land, so he walks through their history. The major themes in Genesis, of course, include preservation of the seed, deliverance, faith, God's glory, all of these things. Now we come to Exodus, and you have deliverance, you have his glory, and you have his grace. Really, his glory and his grace would be the two main themes. Uh, glory is captured by many things, his great deliverance, his meeting his people at Sinai, the giving of the law, the development of the tabernacle, being in his presence, the, the, the kind of reverence that it requires, this great glory of God. But yet it's the grace of God because he's meeting his people personally and he's calling them to himself and he's saving them out of bondage to external slavery as a picture to 
saving them out of their internal, their, their spiritual slavery. It's really a paradigm for the doctrine of the gospel for the rest of the Bible. Uh, misery, deliverance, and freedom, all under the shadow of the glory of God. It's all there in Exodus. If you were to divide the chapters, you would say the first 18 verses or chapters, uh, 40 chapters, uh, it's the Exodus event itself, the rescue out of, out of Egypt. That's what we start tonight. Then chapter 19 to 24, that's the setting apart of Israel now as their own nation. Um, they've had the people, but they were slaves. Now he's giving them their own identity. He pulls them out of Egypt. They are identified as a nation. Now he's gonna give them law and he's gonna lead them to land. You have to have three things for a nation, people, law, and land. And he's identifying Israel now in chapter 19 to 24. Key part of that is giving them their law. Then chapter 25 to 40, that is the specific reference to how to rightly worship God. And we see that in those last 15 chapters. Now, with that as a preface, here as I read God's word, Exodus chapter one, that'll be our focus this evening. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar, and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shirpa and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? and let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Father, as we begin a new study, I pray for your Holy Spirit's illuminating ministry to be very obvious to us. Please give me carefulness and accuracy with your word. Give your people eager ears, willing to do whatever you call us to do. 
I pray for this passage that is before us. May we see your strong arm working on behalf of your people based on your promises that are upheld and carried forth by your providence. Guide us now, I pray, through Christ. Amen. So the two main themes of Genesis, or multiple themes, we would say are the messianic seed introduced and then the providence of God. The seed and the providence of God. These kept, kept coming up over and over again as we studied Genesis. The story of Joseph is certainly all of that. The preservation of Israel for the Messiah to come and then the incredible providence of God demonstrated in his life personally and Israel's life collectively. So now we come to Exodus, 430 years have passed since the days of Joseph. The people of Israel, the seed of Abraham, went from 70 people to 2 million plus in that period. God indeed was fulfilling his promise to make Abraham a great nation. But this development would not be smooth sailing. They had people, but they had no land of their own and they had no governance. So Exodus is a continuation now of the Genesis story where God reveals himself to his people, delivers them out of bondage, all on the basis of his covenant promises. I'm actually going to use a passage from Romans to set up the theme of this particular chapter. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It refers to his calling. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It says a little further, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. When Paul speaks in this way, he's narrowing it down to individual believers within the community of faith. When you step back from this and look at the people of God in the Old Testament, the same could be said of Israel, that God was doing this work in calling them supernaturally, really quite apart from themselves or their merit. But then it says in Romans 8, chapter 30, after all these great graces shown to believers, what then shall we say to these things if God has done all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he lines out all these things he does in predestining and pre-loving us, then what could come against us? You could take that theme, that reality, and apply it to what you see happen with Israel. If God is for them, who could be against them? And that's what unfolds in this opening chapter and then through the first, really, 18 chapters we see it unlocked in full. If God is for his people, who can be against them? This should give us encouragement at any stage of the church's life. This is the nascent church, Israel. Now we're the fulfilled church, the other side of Christ's resurrection with him ruling the church from heaven. Even more so now, what can come against us? Now, let's look at two main points that come from these verses, and I have them noted there. First, we should recognize when we see this unfold that there will always, always, always be opposition to God's people. We should always expect it. If there's not opposition, then God's people are probably not there. Now, there might be less opposition at any given time, but if there's zero opposition to the kingdom of God or to the ideals of the kingdom of God, then we might wonder what witness does the church actually have in that place. Wherever God's people are, his presence is there, and sinful people react to that because the presence of God calls us to submission to God. 
not really to the people who are claiming God, but to their God. And that, that rubs against the autonomy of sinful man. The world, as the Bible calls, people who are not in Christ. So there will always be opposition to God's people. We see it from the earliest stages in the Old Testament in Genesis already, but now we see it really come into full display in Exodus. The opposition to God's people comes from this Satan versus the seed of the woman antithesis that the Bible teaches. You can really simply put things on two sides. Uh, The seed of the woman will be the Christ or the seed of the serpent, the devil. These are the only two options that we find ourselves in. Are we uh, under Satan or are we under Christ? Are we children of wrath or are we children of life by our union with Christ? But in an ancient form, it unfolds here. Later, Jesus will talk about this very candidly with his followers, with us. He says in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Further, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now, think about this. If Israel is supposed to house the seed of the woman, who will be the second Adam, those who are children of the first Adam and like it that way will have a lot of trouble with the second Adam coming. And so this is what stands against Israel from the get-go. Even when Israel doesn't understand its own significance, the powers of the devil does. He understands. He knows what's coming. And so the world system gathers around Satan in this way. Again, not that they know it. They're not saying despite the Satanist club at No Lathan Northwest, they don't realize that that's really what we're part of until we're part of Christ. Uh, And we just act out our nature, even though we don't say it or say a creed concerning it, our life exhibits it because it's really about ourselves. The world system that opposes Israel here wants to elevate itself over Israel's God. That's always the antithesis. Notice the language in verse 10 of chapter 1. When Pharaoh is realizing the threat that Israel is, verse 10, and and try to think for a moment, have you heard this before in Genesis is the hint. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Remember where they were in Goshen, just north of the central cities of Egypt. So they formed a buffer from all that which was up north and east, and they had the pasture lands, and they were keeping the flocks, but they'd gotten so big and powerful that as Pharaoh did analysis, he's realized they could be their own nation. And if another nation wanted to come, say, from old Persia or Babylon, they could come over, and they could join up, and we're in trouble. He sees the tactical problem here. So he says, come, let us. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the people of Egypt around him. Let us. This rebellious language harkens back to something that was said back in Genesis 11. Maybe some of you remembered. Do you remember when Nimrod and the Babel builders were building Babel? And they were deciding, how could we come against this God who's trying to tell us to spread out and multiply? Let's show him. And so in Genesis 11, and they said to one another, come. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and mortar. Let's build ourselves a city. Let's not do what God says to do. We are our own God. Let's build a monument to ourselves. We'll build the tower into the top of the heavens so if he ever sends another flood, we'll be safe. It's this rebelliousness that comes out in this language. Come, let us do this thing apart from the God they're talking about or that seems to be leading them. It's language that only God himself can really employ. In fact, 
if you think of where that language comes from, remember when God's creating the heavens and the earth? And then in Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. That's a little illustration of how we contort things as sinful people, how the world does this reversal when it has opportunity. So we see this to be the case, this opposition, but also I want you to notice that there is oftentimes suffering associated with the opposition that comes our way. Most of us have been very, very fortunate where we live. But you know and I know the world over, most people who claim the name of Christ pay for it with some serious, serious cost. And that may be coming for us. We have to be prepared for this. That's the norm in this life, that we will see some opposition that is painful. And Pharaoh puts the pains on the people of God here. You remember back to Jesus speaking to his disciples, warning them. He said, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of the wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake, to bear witness before them and to the Gentiles. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, he's speaking to the disciples, they'll become apostles. But the apostles say the same kind of things to the followers that they gather. Pharaoh is going to put the pain on the people of God here. In the state of Israel's desperate condition really can't be overstated. Did you catch all the repetitious words that describe the misery that they were being put under by this Pharaoh? What a difference from 430 years ago before. This Pharaoh had no regard. It's not that he didn't know about the history of Joseph. He didn't care about it. No regard. It doesn't mean anything to him now in his reign. He just sees danger with two million people just north of them, and they're expanding. So the state of their desperate condition is really played out here by Moses. Look at Exodus 1, starting at verse 11. After saying, let's be shrewd with them, notice how many different terms are used. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them. So taskmasters, slave masters over them. To do what? Afflict them with heavy burdens. They built two whole cities. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, another word, the more they multiplied and the more that they spread abroad. Even though they were getting persecuted, God was still blessing them, but that's coming. That's the next point of this message. Continuing on the misery that they were being put under, the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Fear drives this. The world fears the kingdom of God. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. That's without mercy. Uh, that's, that's with no consideration, no empathy, human or otherwise. Verse 14. And made their lives bitter with hard service. Their whole life was affected by this role now that they were gradually being pushed into of slavery. Lives were made bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. Difficult, terrible labors. Very different from what they were. They were keepers of livestock in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Moses takes a very careful, uh, he's very careful with his economy of words. In just these four verses, five verses, use so many synonymous terms yet with new angles, shows you how much he wants you to see and feel how bad off, how miserable was the estate of the Israelites. Affliction. Just think of that word, to be afflicted by something. What does that feel like? Burdens, a weight that you can't lift, you can't stand up straight, it's it's pushing you down. Oppression, 
ruthless, forced slavery, bitter lives, hard service, all terms used in these verses to describe a situation where the people of God were as miserable and as helpless as could be. They would have to have some outside deliverance at this point. They had no way to stand up for themselves. If you think of the different kinds of of slavery they were under, they're under a political slavery. They had no representation or authority. Remember back to Joseph's day? All power was vested into Pharaoh. In the Israelites, though given a piece of land providentially that serves, it also at this moment identifies them as a, a group that could easily be oppressed economic slavery. Uh, they couldn't make anything off of their labors anymore, and they were being worked to death where they had no chance at their own commerce. They couldn't get themselves out of this situation financially. Everything was under Egypt's allowance and power. Social slavery, no unity with the Egyptian people. Pharaoh made it seem that they were the enemy, so everybody looks at this clearly identifiable people group and presses in on them. They are going to be trouble for us And everyone believes it, is concerned about it. What they didn't know that they had as the biggest problem was their spiritual slavery. They didn't realize what they needed from God, what everybody needs from God, what they would become a picture of is the the freedom from spiritual slavery that we all need. That's the last thing they were thinking of at the time, no doubt, because of all their immediate issues. But that's the most important thing that comes from this story, this episode. They can't free themselves from their situation. It gets worse, it gets worse, and it gets worse. This sets up this theme that we've seen in Scripture before. God has to do everything. He has to call us out. He has to save us, deliver us, if you will, free us. And that's when he blesses us, when we're in that position. And we can't take any of the credit. Israel will not be able to take any of the credit. Now, that brings us to the second point I'd like you to see in this passage And this is the overall theme that's prevalent, God's promotion of his people. He promotes his people because we're tied to his promise and his character and his glory. God promotes and protects his people no matter the opposition. The other reason is in promoting us, in saving us, to do so, he unites us to his son and that makes him love us all the more. It's not just about keeping his name anymore, it's because he loves his son to whom we are now united under the second Adam. He has all sorts of motivation for promoting and keeping and protecting us. And it stems and roots in his promises. It's realized in his son. And we have that benefit. Now, I want you to notice what happens, how he protects and promotes in this passage. It's quite amazing. First, he gives them a supernatural multiplication rate. There's no other way to do this. I've seen people try to chart this out. Um, But he grew a nation of 70 people to over 2 million plus, by some estimates even larger than that. I'll tell you how, it, how we can calculate that. In just 400 years, we think 400 years is a long time, um, it's not when you're talking about that kind of growth. So we can say for sure that God did something to make them multiply at a rate that was faster than average, to say the very least, far greater than that. Look what it says in verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful, and increase greatly. Again, wasn't that a promise? Be fruitful and multiply. And then he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. They wouldn't even be able to count your descendants. So the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Verse 7, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. There's Moses again using several synonymous terms. Fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, exceedingly strong. So that the land was filled with them. 
another picture, really a fifth description. The land was, everywhere you look, there's someone who's an Israelite. What's happening here? How could this be? They're not just in Goshen anymore. They've come south. Where, where are all these Israelites coming from? Verse 9, he said to his people, behold, this is Pharaoh talking, his assessment, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. He even recognizes this is not normal. How could this be that they have so many? We're not even clear. We've been around way longer than them, and it seems like they're outnumbering us. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, what happens? The more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. I think it's clear that there's something supernatural happening here in God's promotion of his people by giving them this supernatural birth rate. I was reading some math people because I'm not a math person, um, but I was reading their take on it and how this would look. If you had 70 at Genesis 46, or at the beginning of this book, Exodus. Then in Exodus 12, when they're just about ready to go out from Egypt, there's a census and there are 600,000 men who are counted. That's just the men. There had to be an equal amount of women just to be, just to be conservative. So now you have 1.2 million. How many children per family do you think they were having? Uh, this is a nation, at least 2 million. I'm being conservative with 2 million. It could be 3 or 4 million people strong. This is a massive, massive nation in antiquity. They weren't generally this large. They would split up or they'd be taken by another kingdom or it'd be very difficult, and yet they were very identifiable. Remember, the reason God in his providence had them go to Egypt, it was an incubator for the nation of Israel to come to this day. They couldn't have done it without God doing this for them. On their own, they would have kept intermixing with other faiths, and you never would have known who they were by this time. But in God's providence, even though it was pressure and oppression for them, they find themselves now in this place, incubated for 430 years at two to three million people. So God uses a supernatural means to multiply them. I want you to notice something else that he does. He uses unsuspecting people in the life of his church to sustain them. There's so many examples of this in history. I'll refer to at least one in a moment. But let's look at this passage and see what he does. You have the midwives who are women. I take the view that they're actual Hebrew women now, probably too old to have any more children or they never could have children and they served in this capacity. There would have been hundreds of them, not just a couple, a couple are named. Some say these were Egyptians who were employed by Israelites, but their names are Jewish. So it says in verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shepra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, she can live. Now this would have been a very subtle way because she would have a chance before anyone else to do something awful but to kill the baby before someone else would notice. It was a subtle way of committing this genocide. The Hebrew midwives, it's not that Pharaoh necessarily got together with them, it's just showing he spoke to these who are leading voices, you might say, among uh, all of them. Um, we don't know the specifics but this had to replicate down through the other midwives. But this effort was to commit genocide. It was trying to kill all the babies born, really to snuff out the seed. Ultimately, that was Satan's plan. Pharaoh's plan was to save his power. Now, by the way, for no extra charge, since you're here Sunday night, listen to Exodus. When we get to Luke, there's a parallel here. 
because what's going to happen next in Luke? Herod is going to try to kill all the boys. He's trying to save his power, but it's Satan at work again. You see, it's always Satan versus the seed of the woman. That's, that's, the, that's the constant cosmic clash. And you, if you're in the church, you are under the seed of the woman, the Messiah. And there will be conflict with the world. Now, eventually, the seed of the woman wins it all in Christians' debate about how that looks in time and space. But that's for sure. That's going to happen. But in the meantime, we're in this struggle we have to recognize and not be fearful for the same reason we see the Israelites not needing to be ultimately fearful here because God is going to uphold his promises in this way. Now let's analyze just a little bit in the time we have something about what the midwives do because it's caused lots of questions over the years, as you might imagine. It's a, it's a conundrum that has uh, faced people when they think of ethics. Uh, he tells them murder commit genocide, slaughter babies. The midwives think to themselves, this is an abomination against God. That's, that's descriptive here in verse 17. But the midwives feared God. It did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They're not going to do it. We're not going to commit genocide. And that's a key factor. Their motive was to honor God. Told to do murder, and when you're told to do something that's a sin against God, you are not required to do it. No, if anyone tells you to sin, you don't, if your mom tells you and you're a kid to sin, you don't have to sin. Or your husband tells you to do something sinful, you don't have to obey him at that moment when he's telling you to do something sinful. Now, there are, there's fallout from that. And there, it looks different ways in how it happens. Here, though, is an interesting question for us to think about. So the king of Egypt finds this out and he calls the midwives and says, why have you done this and let the male children live? And here's the conundrum verse 19. The midwives say to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They just, the baby comes out so fast we can't kill him. Now, that's, I don't think that's a complete lie by any means. We know that there's a supernatural uh, speed with which these women are having these children by God's hand. But there is something here, they're, they're trying to say something that couldn't be completely true. Are they lying now, and is lying okay in this instance? That's the conundrum that comes up. A lie, a half-truth, yet they're commended for what they do here very clearly in the passage. Now, let me share with you one line of reasoning that I think best explains it, be the position I take. Uh, not everybody takes it just this way. Um, uh, Dr. Rayburn, who is uh, a mentor of mine in preaching, uh, he promotes this view, so I'll use some of his reasoning. This isn't, I'm not smart enough to come up with this all on my own. Um, but the reasoning goes like this. Their explanation about the Hebrew women giving birth before the midwives arrive, this is what's called a classic instance of the dutiful lie. That is an untruth that is nevertheless right to tell in that moment because it was necessary to stop something like a genocide. Uh, interestingly, this is the same case that you recall in history, uh, protecting Jews from death at the hands of the Nazis. Um, that's the great 20th century example of the so-called dutiful lie. Uh, the lie was told to protect Jews from death at the hands of the Nazis. Officials came to your door and your Dutch home, and in fact, uh, you had Jews hiding in your attic, but you lied to the officials saying you knew nothing of any Jews nearby because you knew if they were taken, they would be slaughtered. And so you said that. You, such is the dutiful lie. It was, a, we might say, a bald-faced, 
untruth, but it was still right to tell it. The term dutiful lie is kind of a misnomer when you really think about it. Um, think of it more in terms of the lesser evil argument if it bothers you. Um, telling this untruth was a much lesser evil than the genocide of all these children. Um, there's a professor that I had in seminary, Dr. David Jones, and he writes in his, his book on ethics this illustration that will help us with this difficult conundrum, I guess. I say I guess because it's such an extreme case it seemed to be obvious enough. But listen to what Jones says and then see if this helps you. A terrorist throws a hand grenade into a crowd. A man sees what's happening. He chooses to commit suicide by throwing himself upon the grenade and in so doing, chooses what he thinks to be the lesser of two evils. Because suicide isn't evil. It's a sin. It's self-murder. It's against God's law. The greater evil would be for the grenade to explode and kill 20 people. Yet suicide is prohibited. What would you do with this kind of case? Follow it? Shooter comes into the church. Someone unarmed says, I don't, they're not going to shoot everyone else. So they, they know they're going to kill themselves by running up to them, but they do it. Would anyone say that that's wrong? I'd say that's the right thing to do. You can Google this and get into this debate, but I think that Rayburn's reasoning, which is a, a fairly uh, explained reasoning, is a good one for this case. And that's why we read in verse 20, in light of this, so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Uh, not only was the persecution put on God's people never kills the church. It actually only grows it. Not always up front. It seems like it's squashed in one place. But somewhere else, watching the witness of those who are being attacked, they grow. It's just always been the case. I mean, do you get bold when you see people in the world oppressing the church somewhere else? And you see the church grow still, nevertheless. It keeps growing. The, the church per capita for all the negativity we think about when we think of losing the battle for Christian ethics in this country. But don't be fooled. The world over um, has exponentially more Christians per capita than it's ever had in history. Way more. So they grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, this is a neat little verse here, he gave them families. Some of them either are too old to have children or never could have children. Now they have children for what they did. Pharaoh's so mad now, verse 22. Every son that's born, he tells all the people of Egypt now, cast them into the Nile. Now it's up front, out. Uh, now his intents are, are obvious. What was always in his heart, now it's on everybody, and he presses it on society. Let's kill them all, but let every daughter live. That's not to belittle women, but obviously if those women were given into marriage with the Egyptians, it would quickly assimilate and there would be nothing left of the Jewish faith. That's his thought. And it would, they would eventually melt right into Egypt like the rest and not be this separate, identifiable nation. So much can be said here about this kind of press towards this kind of genocide. But for now, as we conclude this introduction, recognize that Genesis is the story of God's creation of the world. Exodus begins the story of God's creation of his church. That's really one of the simple ways you can think of what's happening in Exodus. It's starting to narrow into the people of Israel from which will come the Messiah, the seed of the woman. You can almost imagine God saying to Israel, you are Israel, and based on my promises to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
and preserved through Joseph and propagated through Judah's line. I will build this great nation and even the satanic schemes of Pharaoh will not thwart me. That's the assurance that the people of Israel had from their covenant-keeping God. Then, 1,500 years later, the apostle Peter, with Jesus, just before Jesus is going to turn them into apostles, they go from disciples, learners, to apostles, appointed spokespeople, prophets for God. Peter doesn't look much like that yet, but Jesus speaking to him in Matthew 16, he says, who do you say that I am? Jesus says to Peter. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the God-man. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. That's, that's the truth that binds the church together. That's what forms the church. Jesus, the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone built on the foundation of the apostles. It's this profession of who Jesus is from Peter that the church is built upon. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. You couldn't know this if it weren't for me giving this to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, and he's talking about this profession of Christ. And on this rock, he's speaking of himself, not Peter himself. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The fulfillment of what he was doing with Israel in the Old Testament is realized here with Jesus, commissioning Peter and the apostles and speaking to all the generations that flow from, that's our generation, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Back to Romans 8, verse 31, to capture the whole of this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's bow together as I lead us in a word of prayer. Oh Lord, as we begin this study of Exodus, I pray that you would give us a fresh appreciation uh, for your zealous watch care over your church. May we gain confidence about your protection and provisions for us. May we in days of trouble and trial know that you will preserve your church. And may we go from here emboldened in our faith that we might be faithful witnesses for you. Oh Lord, whatever the days bring in these, this upcoming year, the mounting opposition to things that are true of you and reflective of your words, principles, give us confidence to follow you no matter what, knowing that the grass withers, the flowers fade, Civilizations rise and they fall. Kings are on thrones and they're off thrones. Presidents get elected, then new ones come in. But you are always on the throne and your kingdom does prevail and the gates of hell will not come against, will not prevail, will not defeat. So may we go here emboldened that we might be faithful witnesses for you. I pray this through Christ. Amen.